Welcome to Precision Medicine Forum Podcast, chatting with patients, healthcare, industry and research professionals about creating personalized medicines for each and every one of us. Together, we head to the holy grail, mainstream precision medicine. Here's your host, Steve Coldicott. Welcome to Precision Medicine Forum Podcast. Today, we've got uh, with us our channel Saar. Uh, Archana, first of all, welcome. Excited to be here. Yeah, I, I'd love to. I'd love to describe myself, um, your role and your experience. But I, I always think with our guests, it's, it's better off coming from the horse's mouth. So, could you just give us a little bit of background? You know, what you've done, what you're doing now, and so on. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for the invite. And um, so, as you mentioned, um, you know, my name is Arjuna Sa, and I've spent. The last three decades now in the industry, um, developing uh, medicines and bringing them to patients, I've had the incredible privilege to work at all sorts of organizations, large farmers, mid-sized farmers, large biotechs, um, as well as couple of stints in oncology startup, uh, immuno-oncology startups, and also a technology company. And I also spent three years at a global CRO in an executive role. So it kind of helped me build that 360 degree level knowledge and subject matter expertise on um, the constraints. What are the challenges each of the stakeholders face in this drug development continuum? Um, so, um, as I mentioned, I've been incredibly fortunate to work for um, flagship companies like J&J, um, Genentech Roche, um, uh, and also uh, lately at Medable, where we were among the, uh, the, the front runners in the technology space for decentralized clinical trials. Um, I've just seen you know, exciting news I want to share with you, and your show is the first to hear it. Um, after 30 years of working in full-time roles, I have now embarked on setting up my own advisory consulting company. It's called AS Pharma Advisors. Exciting. You know, essentially, I, I'm, you know, I'm going to be leveraging my um, knowledge and experience, having brought 15 FDA drugs to the market, 12 of which were, are in the oncology space, um, to help clients and, uh, ad- and, and serve as board advisors or advisor f- to uh, the executives in large pharma, mid-sized pharma, technology companies, as well as digital innovation companies uh, by um, leveraging all those skill sets that I've developed throughout my career. Exciting times. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Exciting and a little bit nervy. <laughs> I hope I enjoy this phase enough so, so as not to want to go back into full-time roles at pharma or, or tech companies, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah. So listen, give us some background. Um, you know, you're saying, you, you know, three, virtually three decades um, within the space. Um, you must have seen a heck of a lot of change over that time. And, and, and also you must have some, some, you know, some really good thoughts about what the future holds. So can you give us a bit of a bit of background there about, you know, where you, when you started out, you know, virtually 30 years ago, what was it like? What transitions have you seen and, and perhaps where you see it going? Um, yeah, I mean, a long time ago, really, we were, um, I've seen the advances in the industry firsthand, participated in it, been a part of it. And it is so heartwarming to see how far we have come when it comes to, 
um, bringing these therapies to the patients, which is what is inspiring. You know, every day we get up, we work for these patients in bringing these um, uh, life-altering medicines um, to them. Um, I remember I started my career, it was when we had paper CRFs, if, if you recall, you know, in those ages, um, having... So now we see um, we can real-time monitor the patient's uh, tolerability and safety and, um, you know, how these patients are doing, whether in, it be in a clinical care setting or in a clinical trial setting. Um, it's just tremendous uh, advances I've seen throughout the years. You know, originally, of course, it was a lot of chemotherapy with a lot of toxic side effects, but, the you know, the whole purpose of oncologists was to focus on saving these patients' lives, you know, um, which is critical um, and number one goal in oncology uh, clinical research. Uh, along that pathway, along that continuum of, you know, of course, then came targeted therapies, immuno-oncology therapies, and then combination therapies, uh, where we were combining chemo plus immuno-oncology or chemo plus targeted plus immuno-oncology. You know, we have seen this, this field uh, of oncology clinical research advance so much. And then came this era of precision medicine where, um, you know, we realized the value of uh, leveraging digital bio, leveraging these biomarkers, um, you know, along with their NGS and genomic profiling to target the right treatment for the right patients, ensuring that the, every patient is um, matched the right trial, which is uh, directly related to the genomic mutation or the biomarkers that they have exhibited, um, depending on where they are in their continuum of the progression of the disease or the staging of the disease when they are diagnosed with cancer. So it's such a large transition that we have seen. And then it brings us to the present time where now I even see things like, you know, we're focusing on it's no longer, and the regulators are asking for it, it's no longer just enough to extend overall survival in these patients. We want it to be with good quality of life for these patients. So that has um, taken a whole new meaning. And now we are deploying digital tools and technologies um, to A, make sure, along with the genomic profiling, to make sure that A, the, the right trial is matched to the right patient, the right treatment modalities is, is administered to the patients with, uh, with respect to the staging of the disease, um, their biomarker profile, companion diagnostics are being used. But then also now with liquid biopsies also coming on board, I mean, it's just opened up a whole new era where now we can monitor the progression of the disease and, and, and using AI and ML also predict the, you know, predict the progression of the disease so that, um, that is the true power of these, uh, precision medicines, um, approach and technology so that not only are we, uh, administering the right treatment, we are also diagnosing it correctly. We are treating it correctly. We are um, monitoring the progression of the disease or the recurrence of the disease um, pro proactively, while all along making sure that the patient who is at the center of this journey 
has a tolerable and pleasant experience going through these, uh, you know, as it is, these are elderly patients oftentimes. These are toxic modalities that they're going through treatments. So how do we make sure that the patient reported outcomes or the EPROs that we are collecting all along that pathways are deployed right from phase one, first in human trials, all the way to the late stage? I think this is such um, um, a golden period, so to speak, for patient-centered care, you know, patient-centered research that we are doing, to, to be honest, yeah. Do you know what? That's exactly what I was, as you were talking there, I was just going to come to exactly that. That whole journey sounds absolutely perfect, but sadly we know that it's not. Um, and I think one of the things that strikes me, I'm not sure if you're aware, but during um, some of the lockdowns over the last two years, we ran some virtual sessions focused uh, we called it Patient Week, and we focus very much on the patient's perspective within precision medicine. There's, there's definitely a trend, I think, and, and please feel free to comment whenever. Um, there's definitely a trend of more patient empowerment, more better patient education. Um, yeah, not Dr. Google, but there's so much more information available to people. Yes. Uh, you know, advocacy groups, etc., etc. Pharma, biotech, you know, wanting um wanting patients more involved from you know from very early research all the way through to the clinical setting oh yeah and so with that in mind how do we ensure that we are reaching i can't say all patients but how can we ensure that we're reaching as many patients from all ethnicities from diverse backgrounds different whether it's rural or whether it's city-based or community-based oncology or whatever it might be how do we try and ensure that we are reaching as many of these people as we can and and there's there's not the um challenges that we face at the moment with 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 equity really i suppose no you brought up such a great point that's very near and dear to my heart i mean um even if you look at ASCO, Association of Clinical Oncology, the largest, you know, there are 50,000 oncologists that are members of this um, organization. Last two um, conferences, um, the theme has all been around equity and um, how do we make sure that the medicines that are developed in oncology are available and the and these trials have um, uh, are accessible to not just the large academic centers and patients that live around them, but to the remote parts, um, not only of remote parts of America, but globally, you know, so to speak. Yeah. Listen, all these clinical trials are global trials most of the times. So the, the need for us, and especially during COVID, one of the things that COVID taught us was this disparity that became so stark in the access of, to, of, to, to, to these medicines to different strata of, you know, when I think about diversity, I think of five kinds of diversity. There is gender, there is, um, uh, of course, socioeconomic, there is geographic diversity. There's a saying here in the U.S. that we say, your zip code determines your your longevity or or your quality of life that you have led and that, and that's probably that's probably the same the world over right your zip code does determine that wherever you are in the world exactly and we need to change that so the need of the hour to make sure that 
every patient that is diagnosed with cancer goes through these genomic profiling, goes through these biomarker testing is number one. So we need more and more community cancer centers to join in this movement of making sure that they order these tests um, that and, and also they so that they understand the genomic profile of the cancer and then they can formulate an, the right strategy, whether it be the treatment plan in the real world setting or whether it be in a clinical trial setting to match them to the right trial. Um, so that's number one that needs to happen. We need to see more of that. And I know ASCO and other um, industry organizations that, that are have put out specific guidelines are making it, uh, you know, are, are urging these um, putting in training tools as well as putting in uh, helping guidelines, putting guidelines forth to um, for these community centers to educate themselves about um, the testing, yep. B, to offer these testing. Sometimes solid tumor testing, you know, biopsies may not be available, but then liquid cancer testing is also available now, which can be leveraged, um, you know, all along the continuum of the patient treatment. Uh, so we need more and more of these um, community cancer centers there are large treatment cancer centers in America, for example, which are very community-based, and we have seen them come together and and um, equip themselves with the ability to also do more research if they are not already uh, deployed. They are also collaborating with their um, you know specialty doctors that are also seen, for example, renal cancer. You know, you have you you want to collaborate with the urologist that the patient is also seeing. So we want to see more and more of these collaboration, and which forms a good team for the treatment um, profile or the plan that you would put together for every patient. So um, absolutely, that is a call of the hour. You know, pharma is doing so much work in this area. They are and there is more to do as well. So some pharmas are, are well ahead than others in ensuring and putting, uh, really putting their resources behind more personalized uh, uh, precision medicine, behind making sure they're promoting diversity, that they're enrolling the diverse patient population in these cancer trials, which is representative of the prevalence of the disease. Um, it's so sad to, when I see, you know, uh, these triple negative breast cancer trials being enrolled uh, without the representation of the higher African American population, for example, which where it is seen, or prostate cancer trials in, in men not having the right proportion of the prevalence of the disease. Yeah. And globally, when you look at you know Asia, for example, the prevalence of uh, uh, GIGU cancers in the, in those areas of the world is high. Um, and then, of course, we want to make sure that we are developing medicines in an equitable way. The FDA has been asking for it. Um, you may be aware there was a, a bill introduced in March of this year, it was called the DEPICT Act, which really the FDA is telling these um, sponsor community to, they want to see a diversity plan from every sponsor. How are you planning to enroll diverse patients in your trials? Show us that plan. And just throwing technology like decentralized clinical trials is not enough. They need to get, go into details of how do you plan to leverage these tools, these technology and tools to really um, enroll this diverse patient population? How do you plan to, um, you know, and by diversity, they want to see that, that the whole zip code diversity that we talked about earlier. So that way they want to make sure they're reaching the, the communities that are hard to reach oftentimes and don't have access to these. And, and that also opens up this whole new opportunity 
where, you know, a publication came out in August last year, and it was a joint publication between the regulatory bodies, as well as pharma sponsors, as well as ASCO. Uh, so FDA um, sponsors ASCO and a couple of other leading institutions, they put out a joint publication. And they, 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 it was called reimagining cancer clinical research or cancer, or, or cancer care. And they laid out very clear guidelines and, you know, recommendations is what I would want to use here. They laid out very clear recommendations, like, you know, making sure you're deploying e-consent, you're making it easier for remote patients to participate, making sure you're deploying decentralized clinical trial tools, uh, looking at direct-to-patient shipment of oral medications or concomitant medications um, in the rural areas, whether it be using home health nursing or a local pharmacy like CVS or any or Walgreens yeah. or any other or Boots, you know, any other pharmacy that offer these services in their clinics in you know within five miles of their home. Um, making sure that uh, you're deploying sensors to remotely monitor these patients, um, you know, and and manage their adverse effects. You know, it was very interesting. I was attending a webinar by Dr. Pazdor, and he has said this not only in that webinar, but also in other, in the last ASCO meeting as well, in June this year. He said that the number of one job of oncologist is the managing the safety and tolerability of the medications with these oncology patients. Otherwise, it would be radiation oncologists who would be delivering these medicines and not oncologists. So when you put that that um, that saying in context, um, it's so important that the right technology and the right tools are leveraged to monitor these patients, to make sure that the whole patient-centered care, which you are, I want to come back on, is done in, in a real-time setting where the journey that the patient is going through while undergoing this treatment is equally important as not just the end result of overall survival. Coming back to some of those points, we're actually partnering with, uh, I don't know if you probably haven't heard of it because it's, it's quite relatively new news, um, but we're partnering with the new uh, Precision Cancer Consortium, which is a, a pre-competitive consortia of pharma, um, the founding members being Bayer, GSK, uh, Novartis and Roche and the, the very remit is is a couple of things that you mentioned notably um, you know the sort of educational piece really trying to reach out to the, the more community setting or office-based oncologists and, and help to educate around comprehensive um, testing mm -hmm. and in many ways sort of making it ubiquitous but you know it's a big challenge ahead no doubt about it um, but I think if we can all start to come together mm -hmm. to really help to educate both patients and clinicians, then we'll, we'll certainly be making some decent progress. I think patients play a big role in this as well. And I, I really firmly believe that, you know, understandably, the, any diagnosis of cancer is, is um, such a major event in any patient's lives that oftentimes uh, just the fear overtakes sometimes um, their ability to to perhaps you know seek a second opinion or or um, even put together work with their team the care team to, to put together the proper but I I want to urge patients to 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 almost take an approach where you you um, you want to be able to be educated 
you know, ask your care team, ask your oncologist, educate yourself, do your research, demand for genomic testing, demand the biomarker testing if you're not given it, you know, this. Yep. Um, and it, sh- it, it should be covered, you know, that brings in the whole coverage issue as well. This should be covered by the, their insurances. And once they have understood their their cancer, the kind of the specifics of cancer, work with your care team or with your clinical trial team to make sure that you are um, at the center, you are in charge, you know, almost you are, you work as an ally with your clinical care team, um, you know, uh, along with it comes uh, demanding the leverage of some of the technologies, you know, no longer should the patient have to travel two and a half hours, you know, every week, for example, or every three weeks for these, um, a lot of these tests, sometimes they are just called in for vitals. So they should be asking and, you know, for all these leveraging of these technologies that, you know, to make their uh, cancer journey more, um, um, you know, more, more bearable and less burdensome for them. So I do want to encourage the patients as well that they are at the center of this continuum. They, they absolutely have a seat at the same table to be, um, to work in partnership with their care team and, and ask for some of these um, for things that are available to them um, that to, that will help make their journey um, easier and, and tolerable. And, you know, as it is, they're going through such a difficult phase of their of their lives right now as they're going through treatment so empowering them with knowledge empowering them with uh, with ability to um, ask for things when they don't get it and most importantly making sure that your your uh, i think it should it should almost be a um a rule that every patient diagnosed with cancer, depending on the kind of cancer that they have, should have a biomarker and a, and a genomic profile testing done. That should be absolutely mandatory in the real in in, in the dream scenario. Yeah. The challenge remains, doesn't it? White coat syndrome. People are afraid to ask. You, yeah. you, you're you're educated. You're working in the industry. You'll be fine if it were you. Um, you know, and, and of course, hopefully, you won't be ever be in that situation. You know. Um, I would be less so, but I would be asking the questions because I have a tiny amount of knowledge about it. But the general populace will won't, mm-hmm. will they? They'll will just take the first opinion. Will be uh, scared of asking questions, perhaps. Won't know what question to ask. And I've said this a million times. My, my wife is a my wife's a nurse an emergency nurse and she comes home you know we're we're 30 years in or something and she still uses jargon which i don't understand um but i'm i'm listening to it every day so for someone who's just had a cancer diagnosis and is surrounded by emotions and jargon it's difficult how do they deal with that yeah, I think they need to absolutely lean on their circle of care. And part of that circle of care are, you know, patient advocacy groups. Yeah. These days we see drugs advertised on our TV, of course. So, you know, if you see an ad and you're inquisitive or even your Google search, if you found something and you're inquisitive, always ask your oncologist, always ask your care nurse, always, you know, reach out to these patient advocacy groups, the, you'll, the wealth of information, these patient advocacy groups in cancer, and there's one for pretty much every single kind of cancer that, that exists out there, have is amazing, you know, they are there to, um, to help the patient with these educational tools, uh, they are able to walk them through and explain these jargons and break it down into simple terms. And even when they are participating 
participating in a clinical trial, the they should uh, you know it's it's very important that these farmers who are running these trials, they break down the trial in simple language and and all along the journey of the patient to share the as much as what they can share about what they are learning and then after the trial to also share what was learned what came out of it um, as well in plain simple language so there is an engagement as i see of the patient all along the process not only during you know during diagnosis during genomic profiling during the t- treatment plan that they would put together i encourage all patients to find the help and never be afraid of asking for help because the amount of resources that are there outside and farmers and biotechs are willing to help them i think the heart is in the right place um sometimes it gets you know it's not accessible because it was yeah. not asked for um i i know in my 30 years of career in the industry so how many times unless a site asked for it they didn't get that or we didn't provide it to the site you know those those tools um educational tools um uh, so i would that's the thing i would encourage all patients to leverage these patient advocacy groups um join forums you know of patients like you learn about what's new and cutting edge so that you are then getting the best treatment the most advanced treatment that's out there um and if your treating oncologist doesn't know go get a second opinion never never ever um you know shy away from that and change doctors if necessary tell me how easy is that you know forgive my ignorance i you know i'm fortunate enough to live in a country where we've got the national health service albeit it's, you know it's under massive pressure um you know where whereas everybody listening to this will know that um you know treatment is is free at the point of care yeah for us to get a second opinion i don't know you know we, we could pay to go privately or whatever how would how does that work in the us if you've you know I don't can you just maybe call me a simpleton but I I'm keen to know. Yeah, no, no, uh, that's a great question, you know. You know, in in the United States, so most people have um they are insured through their employer, um you know, that's usually the case or through Medicare and it's you know, they might get one opinion from the their their, their uh, oncologist one that they have they've been referred to um and uh in order to get a second opinion, they would probably find another oncologist who is within their network to make sure that they get charged for that in network fees and not out of network fees so that's that's a little okay. bit of a thing that they have to call and we do this for everything you know like even in my daily care like when i um you know if if i get a diagnosis of something i always um you know we i call my insurance i have them email me my in my zip code who are the list of doctors for that disease um and i call them up i set up an appointment uh, you know and depending on whether the uh, patient has a deductible or has met a deductible in the kind of you know plan that they have insurance plan that they have oftentimes uh, especially in cancer care it is worth every dollar you spent in getting a second opinion i've known patients sometimes fly to md anderson cancer center or mskcc you know in in new york i mean the flagship cancer centers because it is worth that additional cost for them to make sure that they have gotten a second opinion from the leading um you know cancer treatment centers of america so that they know that the treatment modality that they are being offered in their hometown um is the best treatment care that they can have now this of course comes with a caveat not every you know the whole equity issue comes into place not every patient can afford to do that yeah yeah exactly 
and, and that's when you want to then leverage your local, uh, you know, advocacy groups. Um, you know, we talk about diversity and it, it's not just, uh, you know, you have to, uh, when I was at Genentech Roche, um, a leader in the diversity uh, team, you know, she would always tell us that you have to talk to uh, the barbers and the beauticians and the bishops, you know, to um, to really um, access and and make sure that they are also centers engaged in disseminating and educating the patients in the in those communities and those rural communities. So that's the other thing I would I would say that. Um, it is possible to get these second opinions. You just have to put in a little bit of work towards it, but it's worth every penny of getting, making sure that you're getting that second opinion. So you are in charge of your treatment plan and you are, you can be rest assured that you, you are being given the best possible treatment. And when you can't afford it, um, there are organizations like, um, you know, that are funded like American Cancer Society, they, that fund all, you know, patients who can't afford all this and other, other foundations like the Lazarus Foundation we worked with them. I worked with them earlier as well. Um, that um, give financial support to the patients to um, at, in order to undergo a lot of these treatments as well who can't afford it. We've we've covered quite a lot of ground. Can I make one last point? Please do. And this is with regard to the latest um, FDA guidelines that came out on the use of ctDNA in precision medicine. I just want to highlight that for our viewers here because. Um, it's so important that ctDNA is emerging as one of the newer, um, you know, biomarkers, which can be and the advantages of it um, are can can be can range from making sure that is monitored right from uh, diagnosis to all the way through treatment and post treatment to monitor the recurrence of the disease. So I would be remiss if I had not brought that up. I just wanted to highlight that to for your viewers today. Um, so now I'm ready for your uh, forward. Or fast five uh, game. Let's, let's for, 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 for my you're ready for my silly game. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so what we're what we're going to do is this. Is that up the right way? Because I'm obviously mirrored. Okay, so that should say five minutes. Okay, perfect. So I'm going to ask you and devote one minute to each one, and I'll I'll stop in between. So I'm going to ask you to tell us how we can, um, from the perspective of these certain groups move precision medicine forward so the first one we're going to go with is uh let's go with research so how can the research community help to forward precision medicine go um you know i would start with the use and leveraging of ai ml in drug discovery um right from you know when we've heard a lot about the federated uh uh consortiums where the data and the algorithms can travel from pooled data from one pharma company to another. So I encourage the researchers to make participate in that data sharing um, consortiums, make use of those for your, all the way from your drug discovery to even when you're planning your trials, you are always thinking of the patient, you know, the number of, of biomarkers and testing that we do and that these cancer patients are subjected to, um, think about it critically as what's really critical um, and most important data that you're collecting. And remember, always publish that data. After you have done the trial, um, publish the data, return the results to the, to the patients because there's so much shared learning opportunity there that would be missed otherwise.
Pretty good. What's that? Four seconds over. Oh, okay. <laughs> not bad. <laughs> That's not bad. Not bad. Not bad. Okay, so the next group we'll cover then is... Uh, let's talk about governments and payers. Yeah. And what they can do. Okay, go. Um, I think there's such a huge... Um, there's such a huge opportunity for... Uh, them to educating themselves, first of all, about all these advances in real-world data and AI and ML uh, capabilities to analyze those data and draw insights from them so that when they are asking for evidence for those payer decisions, um, they have sat across the table with these pharma partners and biotech partners and industries and consortium groups as well as patient advocacy groups so that they are asking for they have educated themselves with what's um, available in terms of the most advances. They are making it easier for these patients for these testings to be done and reimbursed so that uh, it's a right thing and the ethical thing to do as well. Um, and finally, um, along the, the patient cancer patient's journey, I think we need these um, pairs and, uh, you know, to government officials to almost form a coalition and work collaboratively with the regulators um, as well as the pharma and the patients in terms of the guidelines and the policy decisions that they make, um, they put out for what's reimbursable and what's not. The era is here for a lot of these digital tools and digital technologies to be leveraged to reduce um, and the, the development timelines and generate more evidence uh, where clinical insights can be drawn from that evidence. And, and that's what they should be asking for in their payment decisions. <laughs> okay. So the next one is industry. Oh boy, I could spend a whole hour, a whole hour on yeah, this. <laughs> that's, that's what everyone says. <laughs> right, okay. So um, industry, go. Well, making sure you have a diversity plan in place for every trial that you're doing. Um, you know, leverage the guidelines and, uh, and leverage the digital tools, the, the regulatory guidelines and the digital tools to to make sure you are able to bring efficiency into these oncology clinical trials, the way you are executing them. Um, uh, as part of your diversity plan, make sure that you are absolutely doing the genomic profiling and the biomarker testing, leveraging them. That's part of your evidence generation continuum and tools. And um, always remember that the patient is at the center of your protocol design. Um, the way you're designing these trials uh, leverage so much wealth of, of information that's out there from Transcelerate, from ASCO, and other, other of these bodies from um, leveraging these tools to A, you're designing the right uh, the trial correctly, you're executing them with maximal efficiency, and then finally you are um, following the patient in the continuum where you have um, monitored your, your um, making of availing these um, these breakthrough medicines to them in the fastest possible in the most patient friendly you know so make sure you're monitoring the patient reported outcomes it's no longer um, okay that these cancer patients um, focus just on their overall survival but the journey you take them through while um, on your medicines is equally important as well we've got what have we got 41 seconds left and we've got two categories to go <laughs> oh, so, uh, 
But that, but that's not so bad because the the last two categories, I think you've covered quite well already. So you might be able to get there. So the last two categories are um, patients and healthcare. So which one should we go first? Should we go with healthcare first? I think I've kind of covered that in the pairs. Um, you know, the hospitals. You know, when I talk about healthcare, um, the hospitals need to be uh, also educating themselves equipping themselves with the right tools and technologies so that they can bring these advances to the patients um, while keeping in mind the the patient privacy, um, which should be paramount throughout this process. So I'll keep it short for the hospitals. I want to come back to the patients because patients are are at the center of this journey. And um, bringing precision medicine to these patients um, uh, is, is empowering the patients with this knowledge making sure that they have the testing opportunities available. Oh, I've run out of time. <laughs> um, Carry on. I, I, I just Carry want to on. say, wrap up with saying that, you know, patients uh, have should feel empowered through educating themselves through availing of these tests. And when they are not, they should be demanding them. Never be afraid of asking for information because, yes, it can be very intimidating, um, a cancer diagnosis and the journey, but demanding uh, for information. Um, and, and you'll be surprised with how much information is available for you as you go through this um, patient, um, through your patient journey, no matter what stage of the journey you are in. So I will, I'll pause with that. I know we talked a lot about patients in the, throughout the course of this. So it was such a pleasure to, to, to play this game as well with you, <laughs> I must say. I don't know how hard it is to answer these questions within five minutes, but uh, it's, it's, um, listen, this podcast has been um, such a pleasure. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I know that you'll have plenty of connections from, from your 30 years in the industry, but if you want to, just add a quick plug, and we'll put, we'll pop it on the web page as well. If if you've got a website ready yet, or yeah, yeah, are you building one, or or what's happening? Thank you for that, um, Steve. How can people get in contact with yeah. you? Yeah, so as I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, I've just launched my own um, consulting advisory services. It's called AS Pharma Advisors, and um, you know, so I encourage people to reach out to me. Uh, uh, I'll be posting about it soon as well. Um, uh, feel free to reach out at archana.sa at aspharmaadvisors.com. As simple as that. I'm also available on LinkedIn to reach out to me. I really hope to leverage my um, industry experience throughout these decades, especially in oncology clinical research that I'm so passionate about, as well as digital innovation that can be leveraged. And there's such a plethora of opportunities for us to accelerate oncology drug development and bring these medicines to the patients that are waiting for it. So I'm really excited about launching this and thank you for the opportunity as well today. Thank you for joining us and and best of luck with with the business. And and of course, have a wonderful holiday. You too. Thanks. I'll be be sure to to share some pictures. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah, do, do, definitely. That was Precision Medicine Forum Podcast. Visit precisionmedicineforum.com to get all the show resources and find out about our upcoming episodes and events. And please subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.